Um, so this is just this could be a really helpful resource for um, ways you can keep growing. Um, let's see. All right, and then another question that I always get asked, we always get asked is, so I've done Wellspring, what next? What do I do next? And the answer to that is, we encourage you to look at Wellspring as something from which you never graduate. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do it every year. You might decide that for your family, your season of life, the things that are going on, maybe you want to do it every other year, every few years, every year. But one of the real benefits of Wellspring is it brings together women who are in different seasons of life and different places with the disciplines. If you've only heard it just this year, you might still be feeling like you're just trying to get your traction. And if you've done this for seven years, you might just be so thankful that they continue to guide you and help you to grow in your walk with the Lord. And when we come together, that's how women are spurred on. That's how someone who feels overwhelmed from the first lesson is encouraged, like, no, come back. <laughs> Don't give up. You, you know, you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sink in. And so we get to encourage each other. So please look at Wellspring as something that we would just love to have everyone continue to per participate in. Um, all right. Any other just announcements you can think of, Jamie? I'm sorry, I keep talking to you. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of the resources we received this year, you guys remember your blue chart? This is way back, practically the beginning, lesson two. Um, and so in this, if you'll remember, we talked about the condition we were in before God saved us. We talked about some of God's marvelous works that he accomplished in saving us when he regenerated us. We talked about what does that mean for who we are now? Where are we at now? And then also, what do we have to look forward to? Yay, glorification. Um, and that's, that's what we're on our way to. And we introduced a term called the mixed condition. And for many of us, that might have been the first time we ever heard that term. And so I want to come back to that. Um, because we've talked a lot about it this year, and if we heard it the first week. That was a lot to get our minds around, um, and it uh, is something we keep hearing about. But it might, it, I think it's just helpful to go back and review one more time what do we mean by the mixed condition, and why is it important? Why is it foundational? Why did we start there? Why do we keep talking about it? Um, and so I want to do that by giving you four implications of the mixed condition and then three responses we need to have to the mixed condition. And I'm just going to go through these really briefly. Um, but the, the first one is that the mixed condition tells us why believers still sin. Right? It's because we're not glorified yet. And that's helpful to understand why we, that we, to understand why we still sin. But very important... You can't stop there. The mixed condition tells us that we don't have to sin, that we've been set free from sin. We are not enslaved to sin. So it tells us why we sin. It also tells us we don't have to sin. It also tells us we have to fight hard against sin. It's not an easy battle. And the, we also, in talking about the mixed condition and God's design for our heart to be just completely united with his word, we've learned how we fight sin. We've got to be availing ourselves of everything God has given us um, to fight. That, and we begin with his word. 
And so then three responses to understanding this mixed condition into which God has sovereignly designed believers to be saved is, first of all, hope. Secondly, humility. And then third, holiness. So hope, because we embrace the completeness of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And we are confident that Christ, that God is at work to complete the work that he has begun in us. Um, we have humility because we understand that all that we are is all of God's grace. It's all of him. And that we are in a condition of great dependence on the Lord. We're weak. And so we must diligently draw near to the Lord through his word and bring his word to bear on all our circumstances in order to grow, in order to become more like Christ. And then finally, holiness, because we are new creations. And though we are in a mixed condition, we have a new ability from the Lord to obey him. And that is his call on our lives, to be holy as he is holy, to be set apart for him. That's what holiness means, set apart, to be vigilant about letting his word expose sin and then earnestly repenting of that sin so that more and more our lives display his holiness. And that's really what we've been learning all year in Wellspring. It's a privilege to be with you ladies this morning. Thanks for having me. Every year, the President of the United States gives a State of the Union address where he talks about what's going on in the country. Every year, the Governor gives a State of the State address talking about what's going on in our state. Now, usually a politician, when he gives these kind of assessments of the current state of affairs, is pointing out his own accomplishments. Or where there are areas to grow or improve, they have to do with his own agenda. What would it be like to have a non-politician give a State of the Union address? Or a State of the State address? What would it be like for someone who is accurate, unbiased, to be able to give a State of You address? What's going on in your own heart that nobody sees? What's going on in your own life? Uh, how would your life be assessed or audited? Well, we get a unique privilege in the book of Revelation to see seven churches receive just such an address from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Seven churches in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, that receive personal letters of commendation and confrontation from Jesus, who sees everything from the inside out. And the question for us this morning as we look at just one of those letters, by the way, I would commend all of them to you as maybe a regular exercise of how am I doing? Where am I with the Lord? As we look at this letter to the church at Ephesus this morning in Revelation chapter 2, we get an opportunity through the lens of that church to take a look at our own lives. I want to encourage us to do that this morning. We might be asking the questions, how would Jesus evaluate Grace Bible Church? How would Jesus evaluate Wellspring? And how would Jesus evaluate my own life? Let's read together Revelation chapter 2 and the first seven verses. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. God, as we come to your word this morning, to this penetrating letter to the church at Ephesus, we pray that we would have ears to hear, a heart soft and eager and ready to have what you would have for us. God, we pray that you would guide us in our study. I pray that you would help us to grow in our love and our affections for you and for one another. And we ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. At the church at Ephesus, to whom this letter was written, we have a unique opportunity to see the life of a church over a couple of generations. For us to understand this letter, it's important for us to put our shoes, put our feet in the shoes, put our shoes somewhere, I don't know. We're going to put our feet in the shoes of the believers at Ephesus. And try to imagine what it, would have been, what it would have been like to receive this letter from Jesus Christ in his personal assessment of that church. We know a little bit about the church at Ephesus. It had prominent founding members and pastors. In fact, this church has a remarkable pedigree of leadership and instruction. Priscilla and Aquila were there, the husband and wife team that had given their lives to making the gospel known in every city they went. They spent time in Ephesus. Apollos was there. He was the one mighty in the scriptures who then was discipled and uh, led to teach even more accurately the way of truth in Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul was there on his third missionary journey from 53 to 57 AD, probably stayed there three years. Timothy was there. He was the pastor at the church at Ephesus when Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to him, AD 65 and then 67, 68 AD. And then it is likely that the Apostle John was there for some time from A.D. 66 onward as one of the pastors, one of the elders in that church. You know, the church was birthed in Acts 19 and 20. We see uh, that they were birthed under persecution. There were those seven sons of Sceva causing havoc in the city at Ephesus. There was Demetrius the silversmith uh, causing trouble for the believers. And then, of course, you have the entire book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to this church. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the Ephesian believers are established in sound doctrine. In Ephesians 4.14, they are encouraged to have discernment. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian believers. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. 
right? They were to be wary of false teaching. They were encouraged to walk differently than the world around them. Ephesians 4.17 says this, So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And in chapter 5, 6 to 11, there are warnings to the Ephesian believers about compromise with the surrounding world. They were to guard themselves against the dangers of thinking and acting like the unbelieving world around them. Consider Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. In fact, we should turn there together. Let's look at Acts 20. Paul, in his travels, sought to meet again with the elders of the Ephesian church to give them some very sobering words. He gathered them together and said to them, verses 28 to 31, listen to these words, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. To hear this sober warning from the Apostle Paul to the elders of the church at Ephesus, I don't know which one of you it's going to be, but people from the group of elders overseeing this church will rise up and become false teachers. Savage wolves to feast on the sheep, devour the sheep rather than feed and care for the sheep in this church. So be on the alert. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In fact, if you sit down and read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, those pastoral epistles all in a row, you get an overwhelming sense of the danger of false teaching. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have shipwrecked, some have rejected, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he names names. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul again, through uh, the pastor, Timothy, over the Ephesian church, is warning them. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. The establishment in sound doctrine, the encouragement to have discernment, the warning about false teachers, even about false leaders, would have rung in the ears of the Ephesian believers. It's hard to think of a church with a richer history, or a greater depth of instruction, or a stronger line of pastoral leadership 
than the church at Ephesus. Here we get to see several decades later, from Jesus' own lips, how has the church at Ephesus fared? Well, let's read together Revelation chapter 2. How did they do? And what we're going to see this morning are six elements of Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus. We're going to look at his salutation, his commendation, his confrontation, and then a command, a plea, and a promise. That's our outline for this morning. That's how we're going to break up uh, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. Let's look first at the salutation or the greeting. Lots of letters start with greetings. Dear Ephesus, right? Here's how Jesus starts. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. I want you to think about the city of Ephesus for just a moment as Jesus is writing a letter to the church which resides there. This is some 35 years after Paul wrote Ephesians. And Ephesus had become the center for evangelism in Asia, uh, now modern day Turkey. This is the first city you would come to in Asia. Uh, And we're not thinking of Asia like the Soviet Union, right? Um, But Asia in terms of uh, just uh, the the edge of where Europe ends and Asia began. And so that where uh, Turkey, Constantinople, those kinds of areas, Asia Minor, uh, that's where this is. It was the center of commerce and games. They had a 25,000 seat stadium. Ephesus was not the capital of the region, but Pergamum was the capital. But every Roman official was required to visit Ephesus first, and all the government buildings were in Ephesus. So Pergamum was sort of just a capital by title, but the government was really set up in Ephesus. It was a wealthy seaport. It was considered the marketplace of Asia. It was also the center of the worship for Diana or Artemis. And the way Diana was worshipped was a temple and cult prostitution. Uh, Her temple was a wonder of the ancient world. 425 feet by 220 feet by 60 feet high. If you want to see a a modern uh, model of the temple of Diana, you can go to downtown Nashville, Tennessee, and they've reconstructed it. And I've walked through that, and it's gigantic. It's enormous. 127 marble pillars in that original one. 36 of them were encrusted with gold and jewels. And inhabiting this temple were thousands of priests and priestesses who practiced uh, the religion of Diana. There was an inviolable inner temple inside this temple. It was the harbor for unrepentant criminals. You could, if you could make it to Ephesus and you could make it to the temple of Diana and you could make it to the inner sanctum, you were unprosecutable. Right? Um, no bounty hunter dared go in. The Roman soldiers wouldn't go in. It was this inviolable inner sanctum where you were safe if you were a bad guy. It was an asylum for the unrepentant. In the middle of this inner sanctum was a, a giant tree. And it was a tree uh, that was called a tree of life. And it was uh, the, the center of this sort of safe haven for criminals. The immorality of the city was world-renowned. There were also two temples dedica- dedicated to the imperial cult. In other words, you had to worship the emperor as God. It was on their coinage uh, that the emperor was uh, sometimes called savior of the world, sometimes called God. Um, and you had to worship the emperor What was interesting is uh, Christians, for a while, were safe while they were considered to be a sect of the Jews. 
Judaism was given a pass by the Roman Empire. Judaism, Rome wanted to sort of keep the peace with Israel. And so they didn't make the Jews worship the emperor. They didn't want to riot on their hands. And so the, the Jewish religion was the only exemption to emperor worship in the Roman Empire. And so as long as Christians were considered a, a subset of Judaism, they were safe. But as soon as the Jews de-synagogued the Christians, kicked out the Christians, the Christians were no longer under the safe umbrella of Judaism. And they were liable and subject to Roman persecution for not worshiping the emperor. Once a year, you had to go get a certificate that said, yes, I burned incense to the emperor. And that certificate uh, was like your fries card. Right, or your Costco card. You couldn't get in and buy groceries. Uh, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't get your paycheck uh, without this um, stamp that you had worshipped the emperor. And as Jesus addresses these seven churches, uh, he begins each of them in the greeting with a reference to himself. Notice what he says in verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this to the church at Ephesus. Every one of these greetings that Jesus gives is a reference back to Revelation chapter 1 and the vision that John had seen of Jesus. I want you to see that uh, vision of Jesus here, beginning in verse 9 of Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John received this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on an island, exiled because of his testimony. It's kind of like the Alcatraz of the ancient world. It was a, a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean that served as a prison. And in A.D. 95 or so, uh, John is an old man. And John, the one who leaned against the chest of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, is now the one falling down as a dead man before the one with whom he was familiar, but now seeing him uncloaked. 
with his face shining like the sun, with his voice like the sound of many waters. Can you imagine seeing Jesus uncloaked? John got to see him. And Jesus makes reference to that vision here in his address to the church at Ephesus. Here he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. According to verse 20 of chapter 1, the stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the churches. What does it mean that these seven churches had angels? Uh, the, The word Uh, Angelos is the Greek word for angel. just means angel. It's where we get our English word. Um, It can simply mean messenger. Some have suggested that the the angels of the churches or the messengers of the churches are just the local pastors in those churches. Some have have suggested that the messengers are some sort of postman who's delivered these seven letters to these seven churches, some human agent. I tend to believe these are angels, supernatural heavenly beings. Every other use of the word angel in the book of Revelation refers to a supernatural heavenly being. And there's something that sort of elevates our gaze about the local church when we think about these seven churches, each having an angel. In other words, what we do here is not just about opening the doors, running the programs, doing the things on some sort of horizontal level. But what happens in the church and what was happening in the church at Ephesus had cosmic implications. Right? It's bigger than us. Uh, there are heavenly realities going on here, and heaven is the audience of what happens in an individual local church. Heaven is the audience of what happens in an individual life and a heart. And the lampstands here are the churches. What is being portrayed here in Jesus being the one who holds those seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven lampstands. I think what's seen here is Christ's possession of the churches, his sovereign care of the churches. Uh, What's imaged here is Jesus' presence among the churches. He inspects them. He knows what takes place in his churches and Jesus' ability to remove a lampstand. The two of those churches come under that threat. Jesus is present and sovereign and concerned in and among his churches. And Jesus is the light that the lampstands are supposed to display. Right? What is a lampstand? Uh, this is a technical Greek word that simply means a stand for a lamp. <laughs> right? What is the mission of the church? To be the most beautiful, excellent, wonderfully crafted lampstand there ever was. Uh, No. The mission of the church is to be a lampstand, a stand for the lamp, the light, which is whom? Jesus. After that salutation comes a commendation. Commendation. Uh, This is where Jesus addresses your church and says, this is what you're doing well. This is what you're doing well. And it comes in two parts, in verses 2 and 3, and then down in verse 6. Here's what Jesus says. I know. I know. Stop right there. For Jesus to to come and assess your life, or to come and assess your church, and to say, I know, could bring tremendous comfort. If you're under persecution, if there's difficulty, if there's trial, if there's illness, if there's pressures, for Jesus to say, I know, would be tremendously comforting. 
With that, I know, is also a conviction, right? (laughs) Because Jesus knows. But notice what Jesus says he observes, that he is aware of, that he knows about the Ephesian church. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. That is your life conduct that is in keeping with Christ-likeness. You're actually doing what you should be doing. Your toil. And the word here is an all-out effort to the point of wearied exhaustion. He says, I know your perseverance. Perseverance is that courageous acceptance of hardship, of suffering, of loss over time. They're persevering through difficulty. He says, I know your intolerance of evil men. That is their ongoing inability to bear with false teachers. He says, I know your trouble. (laughs) There's been trouble outside. You remember the seven sons of Sceva and Demetrius and the angry mob in Acts 19. There's nothing new about that. Uh, Outside of the church, you have the temple of Artemis, the prominent feature of the culture of the city they were in. The emperor cult, the Jews that were persecuting the Christians. And then you have the Nicolaitans. Read verse 6. This you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a commendation. In verse 2, when Jesus says, You could not tolerate evil men, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance for my sake. You have endured. Uh, These are strong commendations from Jesus. These Nicolaitans that Jesus mentions in verse 6 are, are probably the apostle or the disciples of the man Nicholas, who we read about in Acts chapter 6, who was one of those proto-deacons uh, selected out of the, the godly men in the church in Jerusalem to serve the widow's tables as they were in need. Church history tells us that Nicholas defected, but he didn't defect from the name brand, the brand name of Christianity. He defected from what Christianity is biblically. And Nicholas gathered disciples around him who followed his teaching that it was okay to have your cake and eat it too. You can be an Ephesian Christian in every sense of those words. You can imbibe in the culture, in the immorality, in the sexual perversion of the city around you, and have Jesus. You can have them both. You can call yourself a Christian and live like the world. Go ahead and burn the incense, get your certificate, buy in the market, stay safe, be happy. You can have your best life now, was Nicholas's approach. You get Jesus and you get the world. And so there was trouble inside the church, the false apostles, those deluded, self-deceived deceivers. And they were ones not claiming to destroy Christianity, right? The, the false apostles are not atheists uh, protesting on the front sidewalk of the church. No, they're saying, I'm a sent one from Jesus with a message from God, and it's a lie. Offering a new version of Christianity, corrupting it from the inside. They are posers, wolves, false teachers, the very things that Paul warned the Ephesian church about in Acts 20-29 so many years ago. And Jesus says, you have endurance and perseverance, verse 3, for my name's sake. This is a paradoxical commendation. You have toiled to the point of weariness, and yet you are not weary for my name's sake. 
the Ephesian church had practical holiness and theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise. They suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. They were a mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. It's important for us to take some cues here. How is our church doing? You can't love Jesus and the Nicolaitans, right? There is sort of a a Jesus-only movement in evangelicalism today that rejects the teachings and the, the demands on the life of Jesus, but says you can just have Jesus without doing what he says. Now, that's a problem. To be all about Jesus and to be undiscerning and lazy and tolerant of false teaching which compromises the Word of God, um, what would Jesus say about such things? Here He commends the Ephesian church for holding on to truth. The confrontation comes in verse 4. And these are frightening words. But... I have this against you. Can you imagine? To receive a personal assessment from the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear Him say, I have this against you. And what does He say? You have left your first love. The word for left here is that of a definite and sad departure. It's the word used for divorce or abandonment. You have abandoned your first love. What is this first love? Jesus merely states it generally. Is this love for God? Love for fellow believers? Love for the lost? What love is this? By first love, Jesus does not mean the love of first priority. In other words, I need to love Jesus above all things. That's true, right? Um, Jesus is to have first place in everything, Paul says in Colossians. Um, But literally, he says, the love you had at the first. The love you had at the first. That is, the honeymoon days of the church. Do you remember those days? It was in 1980 when Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington National Airport didn't have the engine power to get off the ground uh, effectively, uh, sort of struggled into the air and then crashed into the Potomac River. 74 people on board were killed. Four people on vehicles in the 7th Street Bridge were also killed. And there were a small handful of survivors struggling in the icy waters of the Potomac River. Priscilla Tirada was one of those attempting to tread water And they threw ropes to her and she couldn't grasp them because her hands were so numb and so cold she couldn't grab the rope that was given to her. Lenny Skutnik was driving by. He was an assistant at the Congressional Budget Office. Jumped out of his truck, threw off his boots and his coat, jumped in and pulled Priscilla to shore. And she left. How do you think Priscilla felt in those moments, about Lenny Skutnik. 
she didn't know very much about him at all, but he threw off his boots and his coat and jumped into the icy river and pulled me out. Thank you. No doubt, whatever else Lenny did with his life, she would have fond affections for this man who selflessly rescued her. If someone said, hey Priscilla, uh, what do you think about Lenny? She would tell you. 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. And, and to have the memory of, oh, I was helpless and hopeless, couldn't do anything for myself. Even when rescue attempts were made for me, I couldn't grab the rope, and he grabbed me. She would remember that. My friends, your story's better. Your rescuer is better. Your plight was worse. Your helplessness was more profound. Do you remember those days? One of the great benefits of rehearsing the gospel regularly, of taking communion regularly, of talking to each other about substitutionary atonement in all of its facets regularly, is to sort of smell the singed hairs on our arms once again, of the narrow escape out from the flames of eternal conscious torment under the wrath of God by the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. Do you remember when you first believed? Do you remember the love that you had at the first? Was it a love for God? Yes. (laughs) The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Was it a love for others? Yeah. If you don't love your brother, it's obvious you don't love God, John says. (laughs) Is it a love for the lost? Well, of course. (laughs) If you love Jesus, how can you help but tell others about him? And if you're aware of what it was you were rescued from and whom it is you are rescued to and by whom you were rescued and for what end, of, of course you want to tell others about that. You walk through this earthly life and you look at all these people treading water in the icy Potomac River, hopeless, helpless, as good as dead, and in need of spiritual life, and you have what they need. You know whom they must have. If you love Jesus, you will love what he loves. Jesus loves his bride, the church, right? You, you can't be a, a Jesus lover and say, oh, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his wife. If you love Jesus, you'll be drawn to love your neighbor. And remember Jesus in that parable about the Good Samaritan sort of defined who that is for us, right? Who's our neighbor? Anybody we bump into. Everyone. Love for the brethren, love for others, they flow out of love for Christ. Listen, if you notice your love for other people waxing cold, it is an indication that your love for Christ has gone cold. If you love Christ supremely, you will love His bride, and if you love Him supremely, you will not be able to help telling others about Him. By the way, the best evangelists are not people who have taken classes for the best techniques and learned all of the fancy words for apologetical methodology. The best evangelists are those who just can't get enough of Jesus, 
who he is and what he has done. What does Jesus say about the church at Ephesus? Their love for Christ had grown cold. The Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on that lampstand without paying attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. How good is a lampstand with no lamp? You've got a really nice lampstand there, you know, you've been polishing that thing for really forever. And But say, wh- where's the lamp? Where's the light? The, the great light fixtures, uh, where's the light bulb? A lampstand with no light is just a paperweight, a knick-knack collecting dust on a shelf. And in the assessment of the church at Ephesus or the church at Laodicea, to be removed. You see, doctrinal purity, theological fidelity, suffering under persecution, all of those things are supposed to be a platform for the light of Christ to shine. They themselves are not the light. Jesus is the light. And our love for Him can grow dim while we're busy doing things for Him. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance of compromise, these things are not designed to be the fuel of a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent, personal love for God through Jesus Christ. Those things are indispensable to the church. It can't be the church without those things. But they're not the fuel for the church to last. Jesus gives a command here in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you. Remember. This is a present tense command. In other words, keep on remembering from where you have fallen. The verb tenses here are important. You were in a, in a place you fell from in the past. You're still in that fallen state. Remember from where you fell and keep on remembering that. Remember those honeymoon days. Remember what it was like to love Christ. And another command, repent. And this one isn't in the present tense. It's just more urgent. Do this now. Deliberate, decisive change of attitude resulting in a change of action. Right? Repentance is that change of mind, change of thinking that has a, a concomitant or inevitable result in the way you live. It's a 180 degree shift. And he says return. Again, a, a deliberate, decisive return to the things you used to do when love for me was at the center. You see, the Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, theological discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty. Where did these things come from? They all came from love for Christ. I love Christ, so I want to be separate from the world. I love Christ, so I want to love His truth. I I love Christ, so I want to be aware of false teaching and false teachers. But subtly, imperceptibly, these things had replaced love for Christ. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of that blazing center. And it's easy to see how that could happen. 
A church was birthed in the gospel and everything's new. Brand new believers uh, who love Christ. You remember the Ephesian church took all of their magic books and burned them in the city square. Some 50,000 days wages. That's that's a lot of repentance. (laughs) They were glad to face rejection and persecution. And because they were willing to be different than the world, they endured isolation. Outside trouble promotes isolation and a sort of protectionism. What kind of walls and fences do we need to build from the outside walls to keep us protected from their corruptions? And then inside trouble breeds skepticism and suspicion, right? If you know you've got a traitor inside the fort, you don't know who it is. What does that breed? You're looking over your shoulder all the time for someone who's going to compromise morally or someone who will teach something that is off theologically. It's not long before a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, its moral integrity, its ability to discern error within and without. And the central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus is no longer shining. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned. The church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. What did Jesus say? Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The machinery of the church is still operating. The doors are open on Sunday. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of the church, the defining characteristic of the Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Look at Jesus' warning in verse 5, or else I am coming. This is not a reference to Jesus' final return. Rather, this is an immediate personal corrective to be made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. A church cannot survive on what it is against. A church cannot be defined merely by what it is against. The church must be characterized, defined by, and driven by love. It is to be the lifeblood of the church. And, and by that, we don't mean some general mushy-gushy love that's ill-defined. It's the very specific love the Bible commends, a love for God first and foremost above all things, a love for others, a love that is in keeping with truth and with holiness. It is a, a holy love. It is a godly love. And it is to be the lifeblood of the church. And if it is not there, then the church at Ephesus can no longer exist. To be useful to Christ, you must be inflamed with love for Christ or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. There is a plea in verse 7, and this is so gracious. Jesus could just have simply removed the lampstand. And he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear. It's sort of like a radio broadcast. Jesus is broadcasting this signal. And anybody that's tuned into the frequency, let him hear it. This is a call to those who are born of the Spirit, who are going to hear spiritual things. Are you on this frequency? It is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful amidst the compromise of others. 
And notice the application to all churches in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. (laughs) Plural. He, He doesn't say, anyone at Ephesus who can hear what I'm saying, listen to this. He says, anyone who has ears to hear what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, let him hear what Jesus says to the churches. In other words, all seven. And so this brings the the application to the lives of believers throughout the church era immediate from these texts. And then there's a promise in verse 7. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. Overcomes is the the Greek word nikao. We get our brand name Nike, right? Victorious, overcomer, a winner, right? A victor. In 1 John 5, 4 and 5, John, the same author, tells us what an overcomer is. He defines an overcomer as a believer. Uh, To be an overcomer is not to be a superhero Christian that goes way over the top and being the best of the best of the best. Uh, No, an overcomer according to John, is simply a Christian. A Christian is one who overcomes. A Christian is one who is victorious over the world. And notice the promise for the overcomer. I will grant, that's a gift word, a grace word, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Eternal life belongs to overcomers. To put it another way, Genuine believers are those who overcome and inherit the promises of God. And here, uh, just like all the letters to the seven churches, Jesus makes a promise about eternal life. And how does he describe eternal life here? To eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, the, the tree of life shows up for us first in the, in the Genesis account, right? In the Garden of Eden. Um, They're not allowed to access the tree of life after Adam and Eve fall. The tree of life shows up again for us in Revelation 21 and 22 in the eternal state. And the promise is given that everything that was lost in the fall and so much more gained in the victory of Jesus Christ belongs to those who believe in him. And so there is a Genesis to Revelation gathering here in this promise to eat of the tree of life. Jesus is doing something Aside from a reference to Genesis and Revelation, though, here, he is making a a stab at Ephesian culture. Uh, This is a a direct knock on the temple at Artemis, which was represented by a tree in the center of that center part of the temple, which was an asylum for unrepentant criminals. What Jesus is saying here is that the tree of life promised by him is way better than an asylum for an unrepentant criminal. The eternal, pure paradise of God where no unclean thing exists. And yet believers in Jesus get to be there. How is that? It's not that you get to be in the paradise of God and partake of the tree of life because you're an unrepentant criminal who just gets, you know, let bygones be bygones, all your bad deeds swept under the rug. No, you get forgiven acquitted, declared righteous, so that you belong, right? And there's no threat that somehow, someday, 
the, 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 this inner sanctum is going to be violated and your, your evil deeds exposed and, and you get punished for them. No, this is permanent. Because God has forever taken care of your crimes against him. It's a phenomenal promise. By the way, each one of the letters to the churches, Jesus picks up some feature of the city in which the church resides. Either an architectural feature or a topological geographical feature, or in this case, the the temple of Diana. And he compares what he promises over and against what the world around the Ephesian church boasts in. that's That's just a great comforting message for us. Jesus knows where you live. Jesus knows the pressures around you. Jesus knows what the world around you promises and entices you with. And the guarantee is everything he has is better. Of course it's better than those empty promises that can't deliver. So how did the church at Ephesus respond to Jesus' assessment? Church history tells us that Ephesus repented collectively as a church and functioned as a witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation. But today, modern Turkey is a secular Islamic state with very little representation of Christ. Right? You, you can't find a 2,000-year-old local church. Lampstand after lampstand after lampstand has been removed. By the way, um, the definition of a church is up to Jesus. <laughs> right? There are lots of buildings and organizations that call themselves a church. There are denominations and even entire state organisms that call themselves a church. And yet, all those things can be happening, but the lampstand has been removed. Let's think about 2,000 years later... What does this assessment mean for Grace Bible Church? Certainly we are to heed the commendations that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus. We should never be content with doctrinal error, the infiltration of false teaching, moral compromise, or any of those things. But all of those right things must flow out of love for Christ. They must be invested with love for one another. Doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, heresy hunting, those things don't define a church. We have to work hard to maintain the fire of love for Christ at the personal level. Right? We can never be content with doctrinal error. We can never get comfortable with moral compromise. We can never be naive about false teachers, even within the church. A Grace Bible Church would be undone if truth loses out to false teaching. Or if holiness is replaced by immorality. But we cannot let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of love. Listen, it's much easier as a church to just keep the programs going. Than to actually stoke the fires of personal love in my heart. And to die to myself and live for the benefit of others in the context of the body. As a church, as individuals, we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Joshua 23.11 says, So take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh your God. 
This takes work. Take diligent heed to yourselves to love him. Wait, shouldn't I just love him automatically? I mean, isn't it hypocritical if I don't feel like loving him and I get up and I read my Bible? No. No, there is a discipline to this. I I don't wake up in the mornings and just fall into my Bible open and my heart engaged. There's, There's a fight there. There won't always be, right? For most of my life, it's going to be automatic. And by most of my life, I mean the the part of my life that happens after I get hit by a bus. Right? That part's easy. When faith becomes sight, we're in the very presence of our Lord, and there's no more capacity or ability to sin. But until that day, uh, I still have the residue of my depravity that affects every capacity of my constitution, right? How I think, how I feel, my will, my thoughts, all of it. It's all affected. And so the command to take diligent heed, to guard my heart, or the Grace Bible Church lingo, to be a shepherd over my own heart, 